Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, once again for your word, your precious, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, perfect word that is sufficient for everything that we need, Lord. And I thank you that we are in a wonderful passage here where we are challenged to examine and to think about the way that we do ministry and the way that we serve you. And I pray that as we embark on this new year that we would continue to have our minds renewed by your word. We want to hear you, Lord, and what you have to say. I pray that you would challenge us this morning, remove distractions from us in our thinking, that we would be focused upon that which you would have to say to to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn your Bibles to uh, and your Bibles to Colossians one, if you're not already there, and if you need a Bible, you can grab one from right in front of you. There are extra Bibles, or you can share with somebody else. Colossians chapter one, and last week uh, we began a new section in this great letter of Colossians, uh, verses twenty four to twenty nine, where Paul becomes more personal with the Colossians and focuses on his own gospel ministry. Uh, not just uh, general, or first of all, generally here in verses 24 to 29, but we're going to see in a few Sundays that then he gets even more personal, specifically as it pertains to the Colossians in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. And at the end of verse 23, if you look there with me, I told you last week that Paul calls himself, or we saw that he calls himself a minister of the gospel. And then in verses 24 to 29, He elaborates on this gospel ministry and also his own particular role within this gospel ministry, this grand enterprise of the gospel. And what we learn from the testimony of the Apostle Paul here is that he was a man sold out for the sake of Christ and for Christ's church. He was a faithful servant, Paul. He was all about the exaltation of Christ on this earth. He spent his life devoted to exalting Christ in his life. And I know that these verses, first and foremost, have to do with Paul's specific apostolic ministry. We know that because of all the personal pronouns that he uses here to refer to his own gospel ministry. And his own gospel ministry was unique in the history of the Christian church. But as we look at Paul's example, we also learn much for our own personal and collective ministry. Because as we said last week, beloved, we are all called to minister and to serve Christ and his people. None of us are exempt from that. And I encouraged us last week that each of us has an indispensable role to play in the church. There is no unimportant part in the body of Christ. Uh, A brother last week so helpfully likened the importance of every member of the body to attending a church picnic. Uh, Think about that. Uh, When you go to a church picnic, what happens there? Everybody goes to that church picnic and everybody contributes something, especially if it's a potluck kind of church picnic, right? And uh, some people will bring some of the main dishes. Some people may bring some side dishes. Uh, other people bring drinks. Some people are, are in charge of bringing utensils. You sign up for that. Well, imagine if at this church picnic we were going to be serving cold cut sandwiches, And so we have some people that bring the meat and mayonnaise and all of that kind of stuff. But then the two people that were supposed to have brought bread end up not showing up. That'd be pretty bad, huh? Or maybe they show up, but they don't bring the bread. And it's no big deal to them because after all, they're just there, right? They're there to enjoy this. That would stink, right? Where would that leave us? That wouldn't be good. It can happen in the church as well, beloved. 
Each member in the church is important. Each of us contributes something for the building up and service of the body of Christ. And it's for this reason that I told you that I, I was really excited about focusing our attention for three Sundays on, on the overarching theme in verses 24 to 29 of Christ-centered ministry. And I told you that here we find three foundations of Christ-centered ministry in verses 24 to 29. Last week we looked at foundation number one of Christ-centered ministry, the right mindset. The right mindset. How should we think about ministry and service as we, as we serve Christ and His people and we meet needs. And I told you that there were four characteristics that should shape our thinking, our mindset as we serve Christ and His people. First of all, we should have an attitude of joy as we carry out our service. We don't want to just be duty-driven people who are joyless, who don't enjoy serving Christ and, and experiencing that, that, that benefit and the, and the wonderful sense of having done something with the right motivation for the service of others and the meeting of needs. We want to, we want to operate and, ser- and serve one another personally and collectively with joy. Secondly, an attitude of, of suffering or an expectation of suffering. Um, you know, uh, typically we view suffering as something to avoid, or even something that gets in the way of our, of our Christian pursuit, or even gets in the way of the things that we want to pursue in life. But really, we saw that biblically speaking, um, the call of the gospel, the call to, to follow Christ, is a call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. It, it is part and parcel of being a Christian is suffering. Suffering. And seeing the fruit in our lives and in the lives of others as we suffer for the sake of Christ. So as we serve, we should expect suffering. Thirdly, a commitment to faithfulness. A commitment to faithfulness. We saw this in Paul's life that he took very seriously the call of God upon him with a particular choice, unique ministry. And yes, he was unique in the history of the church. But each of you in here and myself, if we are in Christ and we're believers, if we have turned from our sins and we put our faith in Christ and God has saved us and reconciled us to himself, beloved, we've been enlisted as soldiers in this army and we ought to be serving Christ We have a specific calling in this grand enterprise of the gospel. So a commitment to faithfulness. Finally, a devotion to selflessness. A devotion to selflessness. We should serve Christ and his people with a selfless mindset. And who was the ultimate example of that? The one who came to give his life a ransom for many to seek and to save that which was lost. It was the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And Paul is another example of that even in this passage. It was, all, it was for the, the sake of the church, for the sake of the body of Christ that he did service and he ministered. And he had this, this mindset of, of selflessness. And he, you know, he was a human being just like us. He had his own struggles. We see some of that in Romans chapter 7 and Philippians chapter 1. Paul was a man just like us, but he was a man empowered by the Spirit of God. And we are people who are to be empowered by the Spirit of God as well. Amen? So those are the four characteristics of the right mindset that we should have, an attitude of joy, the expectation of suffering, a commitment to faithfulness, and a devotion to selflessness. These are things that we should arm our thinking with as we serve Christ and we minister for the good of our brethren and the glory of Christ. All right? Otherwise, we're going to get discouraged. We're going to lose heart and give up altogether if we don't have the right mindset, beloved, in our ministries. Now today, I want us to focus on foundation number two. Foundation number two, and that is the right message. And we see that in verses 26 and 27, the right message. Paul's ministry 
was focused upon the right message. And here, Paul expands upon what he means by the preaching of the Word of God at the end of verse 25. And even though he focuses upon one aspect of the message that he preaches, uh, specifically here the mystery, we learn that this message of the gospel was the ultimate priority for the apostle Paul. Paul lived to promote the gospel. There was nothing more important that was going to get in the way of the progress of the gospel, of the advancement of the gospel in and through his life, personally and publicly in his preaching that he did. The message of the gospel was of utmost importance to Paul, beloved, and it should be of utmost importance to us, especially in hard times in our society and in our world. Can I just remind us, nothing can deal with the root of human sin especially in these days, which leads to all of the corruption that we see in the world, but the gospel, the gospel. It is the only hope. It is the only hope where the Spirit of God takes the gospel message and transforms people from the inside out so that they live for righteousness rather than for wickedness in this sin-cursed world. The gospel is of utmost priority. And I say this, beloved, because there are many things that can cloud our ministry and service on this earth. As individuals, as families, as a corporate body, there are many diversions. We don't lack in diversions and distractions. Even as a corporate body, we could become fixated with programs and with property. How many resources we have? Do we have enough money for this or that thing? The current events of our world, we can become fixated with what's going on in the world around us, with politics and political decisions. We can become consumed with the comforts of this life, pursuing and obtaining wealth and a great education. All of those things are things that divert our attention away from the center point focus of our life, beloved, and that is the gospel advancing. These distractions and things should be areas of life that are informed, uh, but not the primary focus of our lives. They're informed by the gospel, shaped by the gospel, by our commitment to the central message, which is the gospel. And when you you hear the, the biblical authors and the power of the Spirit write Scripture and then express their own passion for the gospel, I mean, think about Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. You know the verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, right? For all, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He had a passion for the gospel. He was not ashamed of the gospel. The cross, which was a symbol of shame at that time and ridicule, of embarrassment, not worthy to be talked about. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the cross. I want to preach the cross. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to those who are perishing, the word of the cross is foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God, right? The power of God. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. So his singular focus was upon the gospel in life and in ministry. And here in verses 26 and 27, he speaks about the gospel message and in particular his own role within this gospel message, which he calls a mystery. And we're going to see what that mystery is and the implications of that mystery for our lives as believers today. And as he speaks about the gospel, there are two precious truths, two precious truths about this message that should evoke worship from us and propel us to want to share this message with other people. 
as we look at these two precious truths, beloved, I want you to, I want you, I want you to ask the Lord to, to help you come to grips with whether you truly are adoring and praising God. If your heart is full of gratitude for that which God has done in your life. And are you propelled because you're so meditating and reflecting upon that great salvation in Christ Jesus so that you're propelled to, to want to see others come to faith in Christ as well? Are you propelled to want to share the message? See, the, the reason we don't consistently express gratitude to God for the gospel is because we don't meditate upon the gospel and his word enough. We don't. We don't. Is it precious to you? Is the gospel precious to you? The reason we don't share the message of the gospel is because we don't dwell upon the the richness and the sufficiency of everything that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we're not driven and compelled to tell others about Christ because he's not precious enough in our life. Maybe we become cold and indifferent. So I want us to see these two precious truths about this message, that they should lead us to, to worship and to share this message with others. Precious truth number one that I want you to see in verse 26. The mystery of the gospel. Precious truth number one. The mystery of the gospel. Look at verse 26. He says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. But has now been manifested to his saints. To whom his saints God willed to make known. I want you to stop right there. Notice. Verse 26, as I've already mentioned, comes on the heels of Paul's statement at the end of verse 25, where he states the purpose of his ministry as an apostle, which consisted of fully completing the preaching of the word of God at the end of verse 25. Notice there, he says, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And if you have the New American Standard, there's this the insertion of the preaching, two words in italics. That means that they're not in the original, but I think that's a valid insertion, a very good insertion. Paul is talking about the preaching of the word of God, because then in verse 28, he says, we proclaim Christ. We preach Christ. We announce Christ. Paul was a preacher of the word of God. He was a man devoted to the church. He spent his life invested into the church. He has already told us in verse 24 that he rejoices in his sufferings on behalf of the church. He's committed to faithfulness and selfless and sacrificial service. And now Paul wants the Colossians to know what his specific role has been as a minister of the word of God and the gospel here. He focuses on a specific aspect of his ministry as a preacher of the word of God. And he says, namely, the mystery, the mystery. So the question is, what does Paul mean by mystery? What does he mean by that? You know, in our own day and age, we have certain conceptions of what mystery means. We might say things like, that person is a mystery to me, right? What do we mean by that? We can't figure him out, right? Some truth about them that's concealed and we just, just hasn't been revealed to us. That game or that job is hard to figure out. It's a mystery, we might say. Or some of us like mystery novels or mystery movies. Who doesn't like a, a good mystery? And what we mean by mystery is that it's something that we, we're trying to figure out. It's not impossible to figure this out, but it's going to take some work. But it's certainly possible for us to figure it out on our own, right? We speak of mystery that way. Even in ancient times, there were certain connotations with this word mystery. In certain pagan religions, a person had to be initiated uh, into a pagan religion 
to understand the great secrets or the great mysteries, the hidden things of that particular pagan religion. You know, there are many religions like that today who base their religion upon mysticism or some secret insight achieved through some form of ritual or ecstatic experience. So even in this word mystery, there may be some relation to ancient pagan religions who sought to achieve a deeper, hidden, mystical, secret knowledge. And I think that's part of the reason why Paul uses this word here with the Colossian believers. I think he's making a point to the Colossian believers here that we're going to see in a few minutes. But to understand what Paul means by mystery, we need to look at what the Bible says, okay? And in particular, the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, there are some 28 occurrences of the word mystery in the New Testament. 21 of those by the Apostle Paul. For example, there is the mystery of the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15. There is the mystery of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. There is the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. There is the mystery of Christ and His church in Ephesians 5.32. There is the mystery of the kingdom of God that Jesus speaks so much about in the Gospel of Matthew many times. There are many other references to mysteries in the New Testament, but those are some of the mysteries. And by mystery, the biblical authors meant truth that only God knows fully. That He has concealed from men, but at one point in redemptive history, He has disclosed all or portions of these particular mysteries. That's kind of a summary of those uses there. A mystery in the New Testament doesn't refer to things that are unknowable, but the truths previously concealed by God in the Old Testament, but now revealed in the New Testament. You know, there are things that our great God has always known from before the foundation of the world that He has not chosen to reveal to mankind, beloved, until a a specific time of His gracious, sovereign choice. And I emphasize that because look at what it says in verse 27. He says, to whom, to his saints, God willed to make known. What is he talking about? He's talking about God's gracious, sovereign choice, his divine prerogative to reveal this mystery. God has made it known. You know, you may think of this in relation to parenting. There are maybe things that you as a parent choose to reveal to your kids or have chosen to reveal to your kids, but other things that you have not revealed to them. Why? Because maybe they are in a particular age where they can't, they can't handle certain information. You're waiting for them to grow and, and mature. You're waiting for the right time, for the right maturity in your kids to be able to receive that information. But up until now, it's a mystery to them. They don't know unless the parent reveals it to them, right? In like manner, throughout the course of redemptive history, there are things that God has always known. Things that He Himself has planned that he then reveals to sinful human beings in his time and by his sovereign and gracious choice. And in fact, this is exactly what Paul says God has done. Paul tells us here that this mystery has been revealed. It is no longer a mystery. It has been revealed. Notice the language of divine revelation in verse 26. Notice what he says there. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages, and ages there is a reference to time, And generations, which is a reference to generations of people, but has now been revealed. 
And he says in verse 27, God willed to make them known. So notice, at one time this mystery was hidden or concealed, but God has now disclosed that which was previously unknowable by any human effort or human ingenuity, and God has revealed it to people. And to whom has God revealed this mystery? Who has He disclosed this mystery to? Look at the end of verse 26. To His saints. Now we get a a hint of what this mystery is. Saints means holy ones, set apart ones. Beloved, this is us, us, who are the set apart ones from sin to righteousness. We were not always holy, right? We've already seen a few weeks ago that at one time, according to chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, we were, were alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Chapter 1, verse 21 says, We were lost, we were in darkness, but God opened our eyes to the truth. He rescued us from our sins and He forgave us of our sins. In the words of chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. So that now we are the saints. We are those who are set apart from sin. We have been forgiven by faith in Christ and are now blameless before God in Christ. That is a precious, precious truth, beloved. We who were far off and alienated have now been saved by the blood of the Lamb. So by Paul's mention of saints here, we gather that this mystery revealed is related to our salvation. Paul is speaking about a particular precious truth about this mystery However, namely the role that he plays in this particular mystery revelation. And I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2, okay? Ephesians chapter 2 is a perfect parallel passage um, to Colossians chapter 1 and what we're looking at here. You know the book and you know Ephesians chapter 2. In chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Paul talks about our desperate predicament, that we were hopeless, that we were those who were formerly walked according to the course of this world. We were by nature children of wrath because of our pursuit of wickedness and sin. And then in 2, 4 through 10, he talks about the glorious deliverance of God. He says in 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here are all the benefits for us who are now saved, right? Raised with Christ. But it was not always that way, right? He says in 2.11, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, that is, non-Jews, Everybody else but Jews in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. So Paul speaks to these believers now about the preciousness of the new covenant really here about what God has done in relation to Israel. At one time they were separate, verse 12, from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And again, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. And he expands upon the work of Christ as the great peacemaker who has, who has made peace, verse 14. He himself is our peace 
who made both groups into one. That is, Jews or the remnant believing Jews, if you will, and Gentiles who believe in Christ and who are saved. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he goes on to talk about the fact that there are no longer strangers and aliens, verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Gentiles, who were formerly strangers, right? Strangers to God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are a part of the body of Christ. How precious and glorious that truth is, beloved. Well, what was Paul's particular role in this Reach uh, outreach to the Gentiles. Well, he was specifically the apostle to the Gentiles, not exclusively. Paul preached to Jews as well. But God specifically wanted him to focus on the preaching of the gospel to these Gentiles with that message that we just read right now. Notice chapter 3 and verse 4. By referring to this, he's talking about the mystery of verse 3. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And I was going to expand upon this mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy and apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And here it is in verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. And look at this in verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, he's talking about his ministry, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. There's Paul's role in this particular ministry of the gospel. In this mystery, he calls it. The mystery is that Gentiles now are citizens of the kingdom of God by faith. Citizens of the kingdom of God by faith. And Paul was a pioneer of the word of God to the Gentiles specifically. Again, it wasn't that he just exclusively preached to the Gentile, to the, to the uh, Gentiles. He also preached to Jews, right? But God wanted him specifically to focus upon being the mouthpiece of God to a people who at one point, who at one point were far off. Far off, but now have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul was one who preached to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So this mystery, beloved, of the gospel is that Gentiles can now be citizens of the kingdom by faith. Citizens of the kingdom by faith. I wonder, I wonder, beloved, how much we relish and bask in that great thought. That at one time we were far off. Far off. And God has brought us near by the blood of Christ. Do you bask and treasure and cherish the work of Christ on your behalf? That you are a citizen now? And not a second-rate citizen? You have all of the rights and privileges of anybody else? The The ground is level at the foot of the cross? Gentile or believing Jew? Believing Gentile or believing Jew? We are all the same in Christ. Fully citizens. Isn't that a beautiful, precious truth? It should evoke worship in us and propel us to want to tell this message to others as well. Now listen, for some of us, being a U.S. citizen is not really that big of a deal. All right? 
We often don't really think about that. Maybe it is when we do consider the fact that we have U.S. citizenship. For some of you, you were born here. Um, You've inherited your citizenship from your parents who were also citizens, and they inherited their citizenship from their parents, right, your grandparents. And so you don't often think about being a U.S. citizen and how precious that is in this country and the blessings that you that you experience. But for me, I got to tell you right now, it took a long time to become a U.S. citizen. I'm a Mexican national born in Mexico. It took a while for me to become a U.S. citizen. I remember receiving the letter to appear uh, in uh, at the L.A. Convention Center in downtown L.A. And my wife, Andrea, who was born and raised here, she's a U.S. citizen. She doesn't even speak Spanish, for crying out loud. I mean, she's as, she's as American as they get, right? And my kids as well. They got up, and she dressed them up in red, white, and, uh, red, white, and blue. It was so precious to see that, you know? And so we head to the L.A. Convention Center in downtown, and we get there, and there's tons and tons of families all over the place. And then I get into the convention center. They have to wait outside along with the rest of the families. And there are thousands of people there ready now to be sworn in to become citizens. And the ceremony begins up on the stage. And I sit down, and I'm just, you know, I'm tuning in and now, but I'm looking around, and there's like people crying and there's people hugging each other, and there's people holding hands in this convention center. I'm like, wow, this is amazing, you know? There's this lady sitting to my left, and I'm sitting there, and I was a seminary student at the time, so I had my Greek New Testament, and I'm just going through it because I had an exam the next day. And she looks, she looks over at me, and she says, hey, she says, what is that? And I kind of used that as an opportunity to talk to her a little bit. And then then I asked her a question. I said, hey, so where are you from? How long has it been uh, this process for you? She says, I'm from Canada. Oh, I got to tell you, it's been a long time in coming. I'm like, oh, really? How many years? She says, seven years. Seven years for crying out loud. I go, wow, that's a long time. Put my head down, hoping that she wouldn't ask me the next question. And she says, how many years has it been for you? I go, 20 years. She's like, whoa, my goodness, that's a long time. I said, 20 years, you know? Both of us sat there talking about what the circumstances that God brought about, and I kept putting, bringing in God to bear upon the circumstances, and how precious it was to become a U.S. citizen. And I looked around, and people were crying, and people, people were invested into this, and they were engaged because, because becoming a U.S. citizen was a privilege to them. Beloved, you know, in the spiritual realm... We often can become hardened to the great mercy and the grace of God for us in having made us citizens in the gospel. It's so easy for us. It's so easy for us to become hardened and forget about the precious nature in the spiritual realm of the fact that Christ has made us one. He has grafted us into the church. Of, into the church. We are first-class citizens, if you will, with all the rights and privileges, you see. We should bask in that great reality. Now, also think about what Paul is saying here in this use of mystery. Paul's use here in Colossians of mystery as revealed flies in the face of the Colossian heretics as well, who in their own way were teaching that Christianity was another mystery religion that needed some mystical secret knowledge or elitist experience beyond Christ. This flies in the face of them because Paul says essentially, hey, let me tell you something. I know about mysteries and I am an ambassador of the greatest mystery of all, the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. He says, and that is no longer a mystery. 
Paul is telling them, I am living testimony that God has disclosed the mystery to you who are His people, the church, the saints. There is no secret knowledge, Colossians, no mystery, no deeper mystical experiential thing that you need to be waiting for apart from Christ. No, you have it all in Christ. He's sufficient. In chapter 2, he says, you are complete in Christ. He's sufficient. What a precious, precious truth, beloved. What a precious truth. I want to remind us this morning that our sovereign and merciful God has graciously revealed Himself to you. And I would encourage you and exhort you to not take that for granted. The mystery of the gospel revealed now in Gentiles like you and I. That God is forming an eternal kingdom from people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we are here as evidence of that. That's a beautiful, precious truth. The mystery of the gospel, beloved, of which Paul had a particular role to play. We were at one time sinners, were we not? Outcasts, rejected, strangers, ready for the full, to receive the fullness of the wrath of God. But God has brought us near to Himself by the blood of Christ. How faithful is He, is He not? He is so faithful to His promises fulfilled So listen, the mystery of the gospel now revealed is this, that the Gentiles, us who are in Christ, are now God's holy saints, holy saints. That is a precious truth that should evoke worship and gratitude in our hearts and propel us to share the gospel, to share the gospel. But Paul is not done. Precious truth number two is this, the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel. That's precious truth number two. Look at verse 27. To whom, that is to the saints, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Beautiful. Now listen, here in verse 27, there are three realities that make this gospel glorious. And these are sub-points under your second major point, okay? Three beautiful, precious realities that make the gospel glorious. First of all, the gospel is glorious because it contains infinite riches. Infinite riches. He says, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery? The gospel is glorious because it contains infinite riches. I heard a story reported a while back of a person found dead somewhere in the States in some apartment. And when the cops came in and they searched that apartment and find obviously the cause of, the cause of death and all of that, they found that apartment in pretty bad conditions, pretty beat up, poor as can be. Um, there was a stench of rotten food and pizza boxes and, and uh, rotten vegetables all over the place and just a, a mess in there. Old, torn down, beat up furniture all over the place. Obviously, this person did not seem at first glance to have very much by the way that he lived. Later on, however, it was discovered and found that the person actually had a pretty hefty bank account and assets and a wealth of money and many riches. And you ask yourself, why would you live that way, right? Why would you live that way? That guy lived as if he was poor, as if he had nothing whatsoever. The conditions of his living were terrible. And beloved, I got to tell you, that's the same way it is in the spiritual realm for many of us Christians. We have infinite riches. 
glorious riches that Paul highlights in verse 27, and yet we live as as if we were spiritually poor, as if we had nothing, nothing. In the gospel are riches beyond anything that we can imagine, beloved. Paul is highlighting in verse 27 the value of the spiritual riches for those who are the beneficiaries of this glorious mystery, this glorious proclamation. In fact, the noun riches there is used figuratively to speak of a wealth or abundance of something. Some have translated this in verse 27, the glorious infinite riches which this mystery contains or holds in the gospel. Whenever the biblical writers talk about the gospel and their role in this gospel, they love to use, to use exaggeration words. To allude to the riches of the glory of the gospel. And they can't even come up with the words, the human words to describe the beauty and the glory and the excellencies of Christ and his gospel. In Ephesians 1-2, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that is believers, those who are in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 3.8, to me, this grace was given, says Paul, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. He says, I can't even understand everything that is found in this treasure chest who is the person of Christ. And I have the privilege of preaching to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Peter in 2 Peter 1.3 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord And listen to this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, you have everything that you need through whom? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Anytime the biblical authors speak about the gospel, they speak about glory and excellencies and riches found in the gospel. Because in the, the gospel is glorious, beloved, and that in it are infinite riches for those who surrender their life of self-worship and idol worship. For those who surrender themselves and, and turn from their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way, the truth, and the life. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul says riches. He's so enthralled and enraptured constantly by Christ and the reality of the gospel's glory that he, said, that he, keeps, he likes saying riches. In Colossians 2, verses 2 to 3, Paul wants them to treasure this Christ. He says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, in Christ, you're going to find everything that you need. You are complete in Christ. He's sufficient. Secondly, the gospel is glorious because it is inclusive. It is inclusive of those who previously were rejected. Look at verse 27. He says, What is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? Among the Gentiles. This is us, beloved. Unless you're sitting in here and you're Jewish. This is beautiful and glorious, and I'll tell you why. Because the Jews understood that the Messiah was coming. And to some extent or another, they prided themselves in the fact that the Messiah belonged to them exclusively. In fact, even Paul speaks of the, of the benefits of the Jews and the mentality that they had. He says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 4, To whom the Israelites, 
national Jews belong the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and for whom is the Christ according to the flesh. National Israel would pride themselves in these things and generally believe that these divine privileges belonged to Israel, national Israel exclusively. That was the common belief. We get a glimpse of this even in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. The apostles asked Jesus after his resurrection, before his ascension in Acts 1 6, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They asked that. They're still trying to come to grips with this, with the timing. And what what does this all mean? And Jesus, of course, tells them, don't focus on that or the timing. Focus on being my witnesses on this earth, right? Let my Father be the one who, who has already appointed the times of all of these things, the times and epics. You focus on being witnesses of the gospel here on this earth. But why did they ask this? At, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They asked this because the Jewish expectation was a Messiah who would restore Israel to prominence. What they could not fully understand and grasp was that at the coming of Pentecost in Acts 2 and the Spirit's arrival, there began a new age and a new, beautiful, glorious entity called the church. When now Gentiles would be saved, permanently indwelt by the Spirit of God, and they would be members of the church with all the rights and privileges of the kingdom of God. In fact, part of the significance of the speaking of known languages, and they were known languages in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, was that God was showing the international nature of this living organism called the church which included people who turned from their sins and trust in Christ from every tongue and nation. In fulfillment of Old Testament promises and in fulfillment of God's eternal plan, beloved, God was saving a people from among the Gentiles. No longer would the nations be separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, but they were citizens with the saints and of of God's household, the church, if they put their faith in Christ. Beautiful, beautiful truth. Glorious reality of the gospel message because it it includes Gentiles. And we are all Gentiles unless you're Jew in here. By the way, do we have any Jews in here? Yeah, we would all fall into this category of Gentiles, the nations who have come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer this morning, if you've given your life to the Lord, you as a Gentile believer are not second-rate citizen. You're fully a citizen of the kingdom with full benefits. Al Mohler writes this, quote, Obviously, Christianity does proclaim a mystery, but this is not a mystery of esoteric knowledge or a Gnosticism consisting of some secret knowledge available only to elite individuals. No, Christianity's mystery is one that has been publicly revealed by God, listen to this, in the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, end quote. I love that. I love what he says at the end there. Christianity's mystery is one that has been publicly revealed by God in the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, he is pointing to the centerpiece of the gospel, who is Jesus Christ, the glorious one. And that is the third Wonderful, glorious reality. The gospel is glorious because of the person it is centered upon. 
And here's the heart of Paul's personal testimony here. In verse 26, he says, To whom God willed to make known what, are the, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And listen to this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the heart of the gospel, beloved. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. Can I just tell you this? No other religion in the world can claim this. No one can and be able to prove it. Only biblical Christianity can say this, that their God actually indwells the individual and be found to be true. Only biblical Christianity can say this. And I know what you're thinking. Well, isn't the Spirit of God the one who indwells believers? Or does Christ indwell believers? My answer is yes and yes. That's an easy way to get out of that one, huh? No, but really, Romans 8, 9 actually speaks of believers being indwelt by the Spirit of God. And in the same verse, he says that the Spirit, that it's the Spirit of Christ who dwells in believers. I think that what Paul is doing here in Colossians is he's simply keeping with the, with the Christ-centered, Christological focus of Colossians and says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But think about how glorious that truth is. That Christ dwells in the heart of every Christian beloved. That should evoke our worship, our adoration, our desire and commitment to be holy, to be set apart from our sins, right? It should evoke that kind of adoration and praise and propel us to want to tell others about this glorious, wonderful mystery. One pastor writes this, quote, Let us not miss... The majesty of this vast, nearly incomprehensible statement of the Apostle Christ in you. Who is this Christ? None other than the one just set before us in verses 15 through 20. Breathe again those exalted words of this exalted one. This is the one to now reside in you. The thought is staggering. The reality is breathtaking. Pause in worship and submission. End quote. I love that. In the context, Paul has spoken in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 about the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ, that, that by Him all things were created, that all things have been created through Him and for Him, and He's preexistent and eternal. In Him all things hold together. He is the supreme head of the church, and He's the beginning, the firstborn, the preeminent from the dead, so that in Himself will come to have, He Himself may come to have first place in everything. That one, beloved, that supreme, exalted one dwells in you if you are in Christ. What a wonderful truth that is. Wonderful truth that is. See, to Paul, the gospel was not some impersonal, abstract message. It was centered upon Christ, a mystery now revealed to the Gentiles. It was centered on a person, his message, and we, beloved, as well. We don't preach a message, neither did Paul, that was in person, that is impersonal, that is simply about the externals. We, like Paul, preach a message about a real person, a real person that can transform by his spirit and his word a dark human heart. That's who we preach. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And He should be the object of our worship. And we should cherish and treasure Him and serve Him wholeheartedly and walk in holiness, set apart from sin unto righteousness for the glory of His Father. And I would say to anyone sitting in here this morning, 
Christ can dwell in you as well if you have not given your life to the Lord. He can make you new. But no one, no one can know God or be reconciled to God or experience His loving benefits or riches without surrendering their sin and self-worship and trusting in the only atoning sacrifice for your sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one. So you need to turn from your sins. I plead with you. Confess your sins to God. Seek His forgiveness. Call upon Him that He may deliver you from from the, the power of sin in your life. Secret and public. He's able, more than able to do that. But that salvation is only found in the glorious Christ, you see. Only found in the glorious Christ. The gospel is glorious, beloved, because in the gospel are found infinite riches. Infinite riches. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It is inclusive of people who were once rejects, but now they're accepted by God in Christ, namely us Gentiles who were far off, historically speaking. And at one point, God caused us to have a collision with the truth of His Son, and now we can be made part of the church by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is glorious because in the gospel... God has made it possible for us to personally experience the presence of the indwelling Christ, the centerpiece of the gospel. This is the Christ who Paul preached, beloved. This is the Christ that you and I need to worship and we need to share and preach with other people who have no hope in this desperately sick and wicked world. Why is it important for us to focus on the right message As I said in the introduction, there are so many things, so many diversions, beloved, and distractions for us as individuals and as families and as a collective church, as a family of God. We can become fixated so much with finances and is there money, enough money for this thing and that thing to run all of our programs? And are we going to be able to pay off the property? Do we have enough enough, uh, resources to be able to run everything that we have planned? We can become so fixated on on the secondary matters. And we need to trust that God will provide, will He not? And to the extent that all of those things function to advance the prog and, and progress the gospel of Christ, that is what matters first and foremost, beloved. That is what matters. See, all of these things are not evil in and of themselves, but they should be things that we are informed about, but not be our primary focus. These things should be things that are shaped by our commitment to the central message, and that message is the gospel which is centered on the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, beloved, that as we serve God this year and His people, that we may do so keeping our eyes on Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to You. We are so grateful for Your truth. Lord, that we can meditate upon, Lord, that realigns us, our thinking, to that which is most important. And that is to glorify you as we exalt your Son and proclaim your gospel here on this earth so that you build your church. Father, help us to keep our eyes focused upon that. Thank you that we who were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Thank you that, Lord, we are citizens with the saints and are of God's household, your family, and that we can call you Father. Thank you, Lord. 
pray that today you would help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord, that your glory would be the most important thing and priority of our lives in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.